Today we're going to be looking at the temptation of Jesus, the temptation of Jesus. And as I was thinking about this this week, I think I the, the clearest memory, the earliest memory I have of this thing called temptation probably goes all the way back to when I was, say, three or four years old. I remember my mom was uh, baking cookies in the kitchen, and she did a lot of that. She actually still does a lot of that, gives a lot of cookies away. And uh, I think it was chocolate chip cookies. So they're sitting there on the counter, and me and my brothers were coming in and, and like, cherry-picking the, the chocolate chips right off the top of the cookies. And uh, after a little while, my mom figured out what was going on. And she said, boys, not another chocolate chip. Okay, yes, ma'am, we all, you know, backed off. She went into the laundry room, I still remember. I went over there and just grabbed a few more thinking she wouldn't notice. Uh, I gave in to the temptation, shall we say. And uh, she came back in and she said, uh, Marcus, did you eat some more chocolate chips? And of course, I denied it. I said, no, absolutely not. And I'm, there's probably chocolate all over my face and hands. And, uh, and she said, I think you did. And uh, you're going you're gonna, to uh, face the consequences. And probably the reason this one sticks out in my memory so much is because I think I resisted arrest that day. <laughs> and, and my dad had to come in and, and the backup came in. And, and it really sticks in my mind. But basically what, I, what, what happened there on that day is, is I was tempted to do something that I knew clearly was wrong. And I chose to do it. And then I had to face the consequences. And I wonder if all of you were to stop and think about when was the first time you can remember facing temptation? What happened with it? Do you remember what it was like? You were probably a kid. Or do you remember some other major temptation in your life that perhaps you gave into? Perhaps God gave you victory over it, but you remember that temptation. Or I shared with you the very first temptation that I can remember. I wonder if we all paused and said, what's the most recent temptation I could remember? Something that happened today or yesterday. Temptation is actually something that happens oftentimes hourly. Every single human being in this room has faced temptation to do something that God has asked us not to do. And in every case, all of us have have failed at some point or another. But this morning, we're going to talk about Jesus Christ, our Savior, the King who came, the one person in all of history who faced temptation and overcame it. And overcame it. And in so doing, he gives us the power to overcome the temptation that would come and destroy our lives today. So that's what we're going to talk about this morning is how Jesus did that and how his victory over that gives us victory not only over temptation, but over sin and death uh, to come. So uh, if you're in Matthew chapter 3, look uh, Matthew chapter 4, actually, I think I have it written wrong here. Um, Read along with me on the screen. It says this. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Matthew 4, verse 5, Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. But Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and all their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. It's the word of God for us this morning. So we want to talk about this temptation because this, it's a very short section of Scripture, but it's actually a key thing in understanding uh, not only what Jesus came to do, but how we can follow him uh, faithfully in our lives. And so uh, I always think one of the best things you can do in Bible study is just start with basic questions. Very, very basic questions. So we're going to answer these questions today. If you have a bulletin, you'll see uh, we're going to talk about who, uh, when, where, and what, and why. Uh, we're going to basically answer those five questions this morning uh, in that order, and we're going to hopefully see what it is that God wants us uh, to gain from this text. So the background information in those first two verses, let's just kind of start with who. You notice right away there are kind of three characters that come up in this story. First of all, Jesus, right? It says in verse 1, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So you have Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit, and you have the devil. And so these are the three characters that kind of begin this story. Let's remember who Jesus was introduced to us as in the first couple of chapters, the first three chapters. The Son of God, uh, this one who was miraculously predicted, the Son of David, the promised King. Last week we met the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who came and descended on Jesus at Jesus' baptism, uh, divinely empowering Jesus to go out and do God's will. And it's no mistake that this event happens immediately after the Holy Spirit comes on him. And then we have the devil. The devil. And this person, this is interesting. This is at the very beginning of the New Testament. Uh, this is chapter 4 of the first book of the New Testament. We were first introduced to the devil back in, I believe, chapter 3 of Genesis, at the very beginning of the Old Testament. Uh, and so here he is again, rearing his ugly head uh, and making uh, life difficult. In fact, trying to destroy the life that God has placed on earth. Now, what we have to see here is that there are a number of parallels. You see this all the way through Matthew, but especially in this passage we actually have a lot of strong parallels with the Old Testament. And so the, the one I really want to draw our attention to first off is what I just said, that, that first appearance of Satan in the Old Testament is in the Garden of Eden where he tempts Adam and Eve. And what do they do? They give in to the temptation. They fail. Uh, and as a result, uh, all humans are doomed to a sinful existence. Uh, you know, the New Testament actually makes a big deal out of that connection. Uh, Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 21 Paul talks a lot about how Jesus is the new Adam. Jesus comes to undo what the first Adam could not do. Uh, the first Adam failed. The first Adam sinned, gave in to temptation, and, uh, and, and basically led the whole human race astray. Jesus, the second Adam, comes, and here in Matthew chapter 4, we see the beginning of this. When he is tempted, he does not fail. And he leads the whole human race back into a relationship with God. Romans 5.19 says this, For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so that's what we begin to see happening here with Jesus when he uh, resists temptation. 1 Corinthians 15.21 uh, and following also kind of tell the same thing if you want to look that up sometime uh, another time. So that's the who of the temptation of Jesus. And remember that Jesus comes and fulfills what Adam and Eve could not. How about the when? 
When does this happen? You notice in these verses, uh, it says, and after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. So this is right after his baptism, right after Jesus makes that commitment to do the will of God. He enters into this wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. Um, What's significant about that? Uh, In scripture, 40 days or the number 40 oftentimes has to do with testing or trial. Uh, Remember the, uh, the, Children of Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Um, and so you can follow that theme through Scripture. So basically, Jesus enters this 40-day period of testing and trial. But what's interesting about this is that uh, Jesus knows clearly that whatever's going to happen during these 40 days is God's plan. And how does he know that? It's because the Holy Spirit has led him there. In fact, it says in verse 2... Um, Uh, Actually, in verse 1, it says, The Spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. So it was God's will that Jesus would be tempted, that he would be tested, so that he could demonstrate victory. Now, this is an interesting thing, and we're not going to spend much time on this, but the the book of James actually talks about this. Uh, In chapter 1, it says, Let no one say when he is tempted that God is tempting me, for God can tempt no one. But God does allow temptation to happen. Um, in fact, uh, I know some of you have started reading through uh, the book, uh, the, through the entire Bible in 2021. So right now I'm doing that and uh, I'm in the book of Job. And actually in Job, you see the devil come to God and he says, uh, I can make Job sin, basically. And God permits him to test Job. God's not the one who tests him, but he does permit Satan to do it. And so same thing here. Uh, God allows Satan to tempt Jesus. And this is part of what Jesus meant when he said all righteousness needs to be fulfilled. Because only Jesus can fulfill that righteousness. One other thing about this idea of when. We're talking about the background information about this temptation. You'll notice in the first temptation that the devil shows up, it looks like, on day 40 when Jesus is very hungry. In other words, he shows up when Jesus is at his weakest physically. And that's not something we want to miss. So we're going to come back to that. The last question about the background here is where. Um, again, uh, Jesus is in the wilderness. It says he's out in the wilderness. Well, what does that mean? Remember, uh, again, Jesus came to identify with humans. He came to be a human. And God's chosen people, if you read through the Old Testament, like I said, they had to wander in the wilderness for 40 years. And what happened during those 40 years? It was failure after failure, right? They didn't trust Jesus about, or didn't trust God about this, or they didn't obey him about that. Um, he would give them something and they would spit in his face, basically. Well, Jesus comes and wanders the wilderness the same way God's people did. And yet he does it in a perfect way. Not giving into temptation and not rejecting God. Jesus identifies with people, with humans, he identifies with you and with me. And I think that's what's so important this morning about this text is for us to see that Jesus goes through the same things we do. He had the same opportunities to commit sin that we do, even though he lived in a different place and time. So that brings us then, we want to look now specifically at the heart of this passage, right? Those three temptations, the what What is it, those three attacks that the devil brings against him, what is the significance of each one? What can we learn from each one? And so the first one is this temptation to turn stones into bread. And so uh, I think the question we have to ask ourselves this morning is, for what do you hunger? For what do you hunger? 
Because when Jesus, when the devil came to Jesus, uh, like I said, he's attacking him here at his most vulnerable point. Jesus has been fasting for 40 days and 40 nights. Uh, and then what does the devil do? It's interesting. He comes here and he says, if you are the son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. If you are the son of God. You know, that actually could be translated as because you are the son of God. The devil's not saying, hey, prove to me you're the son of God. He's saying... You're the son of God, so why don't you go ahead and just take care of this problem right now? No need for you to suffer. You shouldn't be hungry right now. Why don't you just go ahead and do this since you're God after all? Um, and so what's wrong with that? What does Jesus respond with? Jesus actually quotes Deuteronomy chapter 8. So flip over to Deuteronomy if you don't mind. Keep one finger in Matthew chapter 4. Flip over to Deuteronomy. Each one of these temptations, you'll notice Jesus answers with Scripture. And it's always from the book of Deuteronomy. It's as if Jesus is saying, the law of God is sufficient to tell me what I should and shouldn't do. The word of God is sufficient to guide me. So Deuteronomy chapter 8. And again, this goes back to the whole situation where God's people are hungry in the wilderness. And what does God feed them? If you're familiar with the story, God sends down bread from heaven. It's called manna. And uh, and he sends down this bread from heaven, and he says, I can provide for everything you need physically. You may think you're going to be in the wilderness with nothing to eat, but God says, I will provide what you need physically. But even though I'm giving you that bread, look at verse uh, 3. He humbled you and let your hunger... This is Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, so that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone. But man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God. So what point is Jesus making here? Again, with those people in the Old Testament, when God sent manna to them, God was saying it's more important for you to obey me than it is for you to actually have plenty of food. It's more important to obey God than to have all the food you can eat. So what's the big deal, though? Why, you know, there here is Jesus is tempted to create bread out of stones. Why is that wrong? Is there anything wrong with bread? Nothing that I can think of, right? Unless you're on like a, a low-carb diet, then maybe it's illegal for you. Um, but there's nothing in itself wrong with bread, except for this. Remember, Jesus was led into the wilderness to fast. In other words, God said, I'm sending you out in the wilderness to prepare for your ministry. And the devil says, that's really not a big deal. If you're hungry, why don't you just take care of that since you can? But that would have been wrong for Jesus because he knew specifically that he was on a mission from God. And that was that 40-day fast to prepare. And Jesus knew that it was more important for him to obey God than it was for him to have all the food he could possibly eat. And you know, in Deuteronomy chapter 8, it was the same for the Israelites and in Genesis 3, it's interesting. Satan comes along. It's really interesting. Satan kind of uses the same tactics all the way through Scripture, all the way through human history. He comes to Adam and Eve, and he knows food's an important thing to people, that physical hunger. And what does he say to them? Can you really not eat that fruit on the tree? You know, Satan's methods haven't changed very much. What's wrong with fruit? What is it that's wrong with fruit? If you look at it, nothing. It says that the fruit was good and pleasing to the eye. Satan appeals to our hungers. But here's what's different in the way that Adam and Eve responded to that tempter 
and the way that Jesus responded. First of all, you notice that Eve gets confused about what God said. When Satan says, is it true that you can't eat that fruit and you might die? She said, she quotes it back wrong, basically. And the devil seizes on that and he realizes he knows the scripture better than she does. He knows God's word better than she does. And he takes advantage of that. And so what happens? She gives in and she says, my physical hunger is more important than obeying God. Jesus, when he comes along, says it's more important for me to complete the mission that God gave me, to do God's will, than it is for me to somehow satisfy my physical hunger. Now, here's the thing. Hunger is not wrong, is it? I mean, God made us to be hungry. He made us to be hungry to eat food, uh, to appreciate all these different things, all these different hungers that are within us. But when we think about this, for what do you hunger? Jesus shows us that the hunger to do God's will is the most powerful thing that we are called to pursue. You know, there's a lot of different things that Satan lies about, but here's a big one. Here's a big one. He says, if you satisfy your physical hunger, then you will be happy. He wants us to believe that every day. doesn't matter what hunger you're feeling, but he says, if you satisfy that physical hunger, then you can be happy. You'll be content. You'll have significance if you can just get this one thing. You know, the world talks about a lot of things, money, sex, and power, right? Those are some of the main physical hungers that people have. And they try to fill those and think, if I just get a little bit more, if I just get enough of that, then I'll be content. And oftentimes they throw the word of God, the will of God to the wind and say, it doesn't matter what I have to do. I want to get that to fill that hunger. And the thing about money, sex and power is no matter how much you get, the more you want and you'll never be satisfied. Or, here's one that might strike a little close to home. A physical hunger or a hunger that we have is to be happy, right? That actually goes back to the American dream. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I have the right to be happy. And I'm going to do whatever it takes to be happy, even if it contradicts what God tells me. Happiness for you, or maybe it's happiness for your kids. That can kind of become one of those hungers you're trying to satisfy. If I just get a little bit more for my kids, or if I just put them in one more activity, then will be the real thing. So these things that you hunger, what is it that you hunger for? I think all those things kind of boil down, those physical appetites, many of them boil down to this desire for significance. If I just have a little more, then I'll finally have, have arrived and be worth something. Let me read you a verse from Psalm chapter 16, verse 11. It says this, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. See, I think Jesus understood that better than any other human. That that walking with God, that fellowship with God, being in the presence of God is the most satisfying thing. And if you try to replace that by satisfying your physical hungers, it'll never measure up. That's the greatest hunger we have, is to have that relationship and to be in God's presence. 
So Satan's method was to tell Jesus, hey, just do this harmless little thing. Turn those stones into bread. Jesus could have done it. He had the ability to do it. But it would have distracted him from God's will in his life. That seemingly good thing would have distracted him. Jesus had the same hungers that we do. In fact, it's interesting. You read through the book of Matthew. This isn't the only time Jesus is tempted. This is the first one and the most visible one. But there's other things that come up in the book of Matthew where he's tempted again. Remember, he says to to Peter, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Satan is tempting him through Peter. But Jesus has the same physical hungers that we have. Because he's a human. And yet, Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And this passage today shows us exactly when that happened. So a couple of things I want us to take away from this first temptation. Number one is this. Um, I think this is just an observation almost. Just recognize when and where you are the most vulnerable. Because guess what? The devil recognizes it. And that's where he's going to attack you. He knew Jesus was hungry. So he came to him and tempted him to do something with food that would have taken Jesus off his mission. Removed him from the mission that God had given him right at that moment in his life. Recognize when and where you are the most vulnerable. So if it's purity you struggle with. And you know that you struggle with pornography or something like that when you're alone. Know that and work against that. Make sure you're with someone. Recognize when and where you're the most vulnerable because I guarantee you the devil recognizes it and he wants to take every advantage of it. Whatever it is you are tempted with, he knows when you're the most vulnerable. And then the second thing is this. When you look at this temptation with food, turning stones into bread, bread is a good thing, right? All of us are going to go home from here and eat a meal. It's a good thing. But don't let good things take your focus off of following the king. Don't let good things take your focus off the best thing. That's following the king. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 talks about this. When we're talking about faithful people, it says this, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. See, that's the danger of these good things. They'll take our focus off the great thing. Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. So that's the first temptation that Jesus faces. And that one's probably the one that we can identify with the most because we've all experienced that hunger. But the second one uh, is this one. In verses 5 through 7, when the devil comes to Jesus and, and takes him, whether it's in a vision or in person, we're not quite sure, but he takes him up to the highest point of the temple and says, throw yourself down and God's going to save your life because I'm going to quote scripture to you. Uh, and, and he basically uses scripture to prove that Jesus can do this. Okay, so look at this. This is in verses, uh, verses three and four, or verses five through seven. This is what he says to him. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. 
Now, it's interesting, Jesus answers again uh, from Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, if you got your finger back there, go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Deuteronomy 6 is actually one of the, the foundational passages in, uh, in Israelite belief, in Jewish and the Hebrew faith. Uh, Hebrews 6, or Jan, excuse me, Deuteronomy 6, you've probably heard this before. Uh, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. That's chapter 6, verses 4 through 6. A little later in the chapter, Jesus quotes uh, verse 13. He says, It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. Jesus tells the devil, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Verse 16, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Massa. Uh, and if you know what that situation was, that's when God's people said, we want water. And God said, you have to have it my way. And they rebelled against him. So what are we talking about here? I think the question we have to ask in this, in this temptation is, in whom do you trust? In whom do you trust? That's what Satan was getting at with Jesus. And how do we know that? Uh, look back at Psalm 90, 91. This is what Satan quotes to Jesus. Those those words about, uh, if you throw yourself down, the angels will protect you. And guess what? Psalm 90 is actually a psalm that's all about trusting God. And it's interesting, uh, in that first temptation, Satan tried to make it a physical temptation, and Jesus said, no, the spiritual reality is greater. I have to follow God. So then Satan says, okay, fine, you're a spiritual person. Let's make it real spiritual. Throw yourself off the temple, and let's see how great your trust is. So what's wrong with this? I think the moment an individual puts God to the test, it reveals that he or she really doesn't trust God. Why does God tell his people don't put God to the test? He's saying, if you trust me, you don't need to test me. You know I'm there. And so it would have been wrong for Jesus to put God to the test. You know, these verses from Psalm 91, uh, where it talks about how you can uh, the angels will lift you up. On, your, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's not an invitation for you to go and do something that's absolutely against physics and just hope that God bails you out of it, okay? The psalm is a basic description of how you can trust in the Lord your God. I love the end of it. It says, because he holds fast to me in love, I will deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. God says, if you know his name you've trusted him, you'll find him trustworthy. He will protect you. He will save you. And to put God to the test, we are told, is an offense to God, an offense to his son. You know, uh, something that kind of helps us understand this temptation, I think, is this. Uh, look at this $1 bill. You've noticed this on all our money, right? It says, in God we trust. In whom do you trust? It says on our money, in God we trust. Whoever created the American currency way back and started putting that on every coin and on every dollar and on every piece of currency wanted us to remember, don't trust this money, trust God. Well, guess what? I don't think it's worked, right? <laughs> I mean, just look at the world around us. I'm pretty sure maybe some of us even put our trust in money. And so for Satan to tempt Jesus in this way and say... Um, you need to prove that God's trustworthy. Jesus said, no, I already trust God. There's nothing to prove. I know he's trustworthy. 
trust in God we trust might be empty words on money. But it wasn't empty words in Jesus' mouth, and it's not empty words in our mouth. So when you ask yourself this question, in whom do you trust? Think about this. Jesus demonstrates perfect trust in God. He says, I don't have to show all the people how amazing I am or how amazing God is. I can trust God alone. You know, I think for most of us, if we stop and think about who it is that we are the most tempted to trust or what it is that we are the most tempted to trust, at the top of the list is probably ourself, right? I want to trust myself to make sure everything goes the way I want it to, whether it's in my parenting or in my marriage or in my financial planning. I'm going to trust that I have the best way of doing this. And God says you have to rely on me for everything, especially for your eternal security. There's no one else who can save you from any circumstance except God. In whom do you trust? You know, if you're struggling with an illness um, or something very serious like that, it might be that you'd be tempted to put all your trust in the modern medicine and in the doctors and nurses and and, in the system that we live in. But I think, again, this temptation, again, shows us that we are called to trust in God alone, not to test him, but to trust him. Jesus demonstrates perfect trust. Those first two temptations, I think, deal with our significance. He wants Jesus to be comfortable, to feel significant. He wants Jesus to uh, seek his own security in his own way. But the third temptation, it's like almost a last-ditch effort that we see here in verses 8 through 10. And I think the question that Jesus, that Satan asks Jesus, really that he asks us, is whom will you worship? Whom will you worship? Verses 8 through 10. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. And then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. This last ditch effort, you know, God had promised Jesus that he would be the king of kings. Jesus knew this. He came to be the king who would save the world. And basically what Satan does here is he comes and says, I'm going to offer you a little shortcut. You only have to do one thing. Just drop to your knees and worship me, and then it'll all be over. You can be the prince over all these nations, the king over all these nations. That Jesus sees through that. Because there's no shortcut to accomplishing God's will. The only way to accomplish his will is to follow him. And the other thing about this is whatever we worship, we will serve. And so when Satan tells Jesus to bow down and worship him, he's saying, you need to serve me. In other words, make me the king in your life. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful that Jesus resisted that temptation. That the king of kings said no to that temptation. Didn't take the shortcut, even though he knew, as we'll see throughout the book of Matthew, he knew what it was going to cost him. To complete his mission. He knew he'd be betrayed. Crucified. Dead and buried. In order to set us free from our sins. Praise God. He also knew that he would be raised from the dead on the third day. To give us eternal life. Whom do you worship? Whatever we worship we will serve. 
And I think a lot of times if you stop and look at what am I serving or who am I serving, it reveals who you worship. And there's only room for one ultimate thing in your life. And that ultimate thing must be the God who created you. That's what you were created for, is to have a relationship with him, to worship him, to order your whole life around following him. The devil would love nothing more than to derail that plan, to prevent you from following him, from serving him, from worshiping him. And so he would try to distract you with all kinds of things to try to get you to worship those things, just like he did for Jesus. You know, these temptations, these three temptations right here in the middle of our passage, I think it really shows us again that Satan's methods don't change. He does the same thing to Adam and Eve that he does to the children of Israel, that he does to the kings and the prophets, that he does to Jesus himself, that he does to us. He's kind of got a formula that he knows that works with humans. And he knows how to make us fail. But Jesus shows us that we can have victory. Look at these verses from 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with all its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You think about those things right there in the middle, the desires of the flesh. Remember the hunger that Jesus had for bread. The desires of the eyes or the lust of the eyes. Jesus saw all the kingdoms of the world. The pride of life. He knew that if he threw himself off of there, he could trust himself. And yet he resisted those temptations. And we're called to do the same. That brings us to the why of this passage. Why did Jesus have to do this? Why is this an important thing for us to realize in his life? And the why is this. Jesus defeats Satan. In a moment of weakness, he still is strong enough to say no. And he defeats Satan. You know, Jesus actually defeats Satan multiple times throughout the Gospels. When he heals people, when he raises people from the dead, he beats Satan back multiple times. But this victory here over temptation gives us great hope, great hope. And I think it gives us this takeaway. Jesus overcame temptation and through his strength, so can you and so can I. That's what we need to realize. Now, at the end of the day, you might come here and you say, well, Marcus, you don't know what I'm struggling with. I've got this temptation that I've been given into over and over again, or I'm on the verge of giving in, or I've already given in. How does this message help me? I think, again, you can see a few things to do battle against Satan. The way Jesus does battle against Satan should be the way we do battle against Satan. Knowing God's word and knowing God's will is crucial in this battle. Remember, Jesus three times is tempted and three times he responds with scripture. He knows God's word. And he also knows God's will. He knows what he's called to do. Brothers and sisters, if we are believers, you know Jesus. You are called to know his word and know his will. And that'll be an incredible weapon against Satan and his attacks on you. Here's another verse. Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. 
So we have to rely on Jesus in this battle. Ask him for help. He's the one who's already won the victory. Ask him to help you, to walk with you. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. By way of encouragement, this verse says this. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. So again, another practical thing here is look for the way out. Look for the way of escape. It might be a person who can help you, who can grab your hand and pull you out of that temptation. It will always involve asking God for help. Maybe it's a counselor or a pastor you can talk to. Maybe it's a new direction that you walk in. But look for the way out. Jesus overcame temptation. And through his strength, so can you. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. I would just challenge you. He desires to devour you. Don't become his next meal. Jesus overcame temptation. And through his strength, so can you. And so can I. Let's bow for prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this morning. God, we thank you for your word. God, as we do battle against Satan and the temptations that he brings our way. God, I pray that we would faithfully follow you so that we could bring more and more people to know you for all eternity. God, it's in the name of your son, our great savior, the victor over sin, we pray. Amen. All right, you are dismissed. Go and make disciples and we will see you next week.